Well, our reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, and verses 13 to 28. If you've got a church Bible, that's on pages 1003 and 1004. So that's Mark, chapter 2, and verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it? that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Thanks, Malcolm. A very long passage this morning. Got a lot to get through. Um, so one of the grown-ups in our household, I won't say which one, but it's not me, um, is a really big fan of the estate agent programs um, that they have on TV. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but basically every single one of them they've ever made goes like this. The house hunters meet the agents, and they have a conversation about what the house hunters are looking for. They want to live in a particular area. They want particular things as part of their house, and they have a budget. So the agents take them to see a house that has everything they want, and it's within budget, but it's 25 miles away from the area that they want to live in. Then the agents take them to see something that is in the right area, and it is within budget, 
but it's wrong. The roof's made of cheese, or something along those lines. So the house hunters don't like that one either. So the agents sigh and waggle their eyebrows and do a voiceover about how incredibly tough their job is. And then they take the house hunters to see a house that's in the right area, has all the right features, but you've guessed it, it's over budget. So they all get together at a pub somewhere and they have a conversation. And in that conversation, they talk about how you can't necessarily get everything you want in a house. You have to compromise a bit. Maybe it's on the area, maybe it's on the budget, maybe it's on the features. And then the house hunters decide which one they're gonna compromise on, buy a house and do a catch up six months later where they talk about how having a cheese roof is actually really quite convenient when you're feeling peckish. I'm simplifying, um, but only a bit. Basically, every episode runs to that formula. Now, that's not my favorite form of entertainment, you might have guessed, um, but actually seeing that formula over and over again does drum it into you. It's actually quite educational, right? We've watched this thing over and over again playing out in front of us. And so when we moved a couple of years ago, Nat and I knew that we would have to compromise. We knew that we would have ideas about area, we'd have ideas about features, and we had a discussion before we went and looked at anything at all about what we were prepared to compromise on. We'd seen the formula play out, and so we'd learned the important things about that process. So in this morning's passage, you'll have noticed we've got three episodes, three entirely separate events. And in some ways, they're all very different, and actually... You could get different things out of each of them. But in some ways, they are related. And actually, what we're going to see as we go through is that the way that Jesus deals with these situations does follow a formula. There are certain common elements to all three of them. And so just like we learned how to look for a house uh, from, uh, from watching those property shows, hopefully we can learn those truths that Jesus is trying to teach us by picking out his formula out of those three Incidents. So that's what we're, we're going to try and do this morning. So Bernard said last week, the early part of um, Mark's gospel is a story of conflict. Um, and these three episodes all have the same source of conflict. Uh, this morning, verse 16, verse 18, verse 24, there's the same word in each of them, the Pharisees. So just before we dive into the incidents, let's just spend a minute understanding who the Pharisees were. Um, because I think we get that wrong quite a lot. The word Pharisee, I think, we think of as a job title. I think we think of it as bishop or something along those lines. That's actually not right. The Pharisees, wasn't, that wasn't a job. They weren't a club or a secret society. The Pharisees were a way of doing Judaism. So in the same way that we might talk about evangelicals or charismatics or Puritans or something along those lines. That's what the Pharisees were. They were a school of thought. There's a lot of history here that we don't have time to cover, but for various reasons at this point in time when these stories take place, the Pharisees are the main school of thought in Israel. So what the Pharisees believe is hugely influential. There are, of course, some teachers who are Pharisees, but not every Pharisee is a teacher. So the beliefs that, um, that we're looking at that cause the conflicts with Jesus are the Pharisees' beliefs. And that's because the way the Pharisees did things was they looked at the law, the Old Testament instructions that God gave to his people, and they built a bit of a protective shell 
around the outside of it. I apologize for not having any visual aids this morning. Uh, I think this would have been really helpful, but I ran out of time. Um, but basically what they did uh, was came up with a load of other rules, a lot of other interpretations to kind of keep you away from the law. So if the law said don't drive a car any faster than 30, the Pharisees would write another rule that said don't drive a car any faster than 20, or maybe don't drive a car, or maybe don't even get in a car, because then you're going to be really clear of breaking the law. And here's where they went wrong. They didn't express those things as guidance or advice. They didn't say, if you're worried that you might go over 30, here's an idea, maybe don't go over 20. What they said was, that's the rule now, don't go over 20. If you want to be righteous, keep these rules, not just the law. That's what the Pharisees did. So we're going to come back to that as we go through, and we're going to see if we can pick out the formula uh, in these three episodes this morning. So first, uh, verse 13, Jesus is teaching in front of a crowd. Verse 14, he calls Levi to follow. Levi decides there and then to follow Jesus. Uh, and uh, verse 15 throws a, a going-away party, essentially, that Jesus attends with his disciples and with the crowd that's following him, which is also tax collectors and miscellaneous sinners. We're not told what the other guys did. So they're sharing food, and verse 16, some of the teachers who were Pharisees decide to object to it. Now, nothing in this passage actually tells us what their objection was, right? It's not written down there at all. He's eating dinner with some tax collectors and some sinners. For Mark's original readers, who knew what the Pharisees were about, actually there wouldn't even have been a question. As soon as you said tax collector, they knew what the problem was. Because Israel at this time was part of the Roman Empire. And without modern communications, there's absolutely no way you can have an empire that you administer from the middle. So what they did was they handed certain things off to local level, and tax collection was one of them. And so what happened was anyone who wanted the job of collecting tax in a particular town or region would go to the local authority and literally put in a bid and say, this is how much tax I think I can collect. And then the winning bidder became the tax collector. And the winning bidder had the full authority of Rome behind them um, to come and enforce their tax demands. You can probably see where this is going. They knew from day one how much money they had to deliver to Rome. But if they collected something more than that, they were entitled to keep it. That was part of the job. It's basically legalized extortion. It's a scam. And throughout the empire, pretty much everyone hated tax collectors because they were out for whatever they could get. They were making themselves rich. But in Israel, it was actually a step beyond even that. Israel, don't forget, it defined by being God's people, defined by God's covenant promises. Israel's meant to be a great nation, not a people who are living under someone else's rule. They'd lived under someone else's rule before, in Egypt, in Babylon. Those were the low points in their history. They knew that. Roman rule in Israel wasn't like having a government that you think is incompetent. Roman rule in Israel is sacrilege. Roman rule in Israel is flying in the face of God's covenant promises. That's how Israel felt about it. So being a tax collector 
being somebody who is part of the machinery of the Roman state, part of the machinery of the oppressor, that's not just being a collaborator. If you spend your days taking from Israel and giving to Rome, that's not just unpopular, that's defiance to God. That is a life of sin. That's how they saw it at that time. The way the Pharisees saw things, that meant the tax collectors weren't welcome among God's people. They were cut off. They were excluded from the synagogue. They weren't allowed to attend. And worse than that, the Pharisees said that tax collectors were unclean under the law. And then they said, if you associate with tax collectors, if you associate with people who are unclean, you can become unclean as well. So that's their objection. That's why they're objecting to Jesus uh, eating with the tax collectors. And this is textbook Pharisee stuff. This is that shell that they built around the law. The law does say that people can become unclean through certain kinds of sinful behavior. It doesn't say tax collectors specifically, but you can sort of understand how they got there. Being one of those people, devoting your life to this act of defiance to God, may have been a breach of the law. We don't have time to, to say yes or no on that. It's quite a complicated question. But what we are sure of is there's nothing in the law that says that spending time with one of those people is just as bad as being one of those people. We can be sure of that. That's an invention of the Pharisees. That's one of the rules that they made up, going further than the law to try and score extra points to try and make themselves righteous. So step one in the formula that Jesus uses here, he rejects religious righteousness. He rejects religious righteousness. The Pharisees' religion said, don't associate with those people if you want to be righteous. Jesus rejects that. Jesus is very happy to sit down for dinner with the tax collectors and the sinners and the outcasts. So when they challenge him, uh, he explains. Verse 17, Jesus describes himself as a doctor. And the disease that he's uh, here to cure is sin. And that's step two of the formula. I got into my alliteration this week. He rejects religious righteousness. Step two, he refers to right relationships. Let's be totally clear what Jesus is doing is not to try to challenge the law. We've already seen in chapter one, he heals a man with a skin disease. That skin disease had made that man unclean. What does Jesus say to him after he's healed him? Go and offer the sacrifices that will make you clean again. Jesus hasn't come to say, ritual cleanliness is not important. What he has come to say is that avoiding people, even if they were unclean, is not the way to be righteous. He's rejecting that religion. If a doctor was setting out to cure disease, he couldn't avoid coming into contact with people who had those diseases. Touching some of those people would make that doctor unclean that's okay. You can't be a doctor if you're not going to go and do that, if you're not going to go and touch that person, if you're not going to become unclean. And there were procedures to become clean again. That was in the law too. The law fully expected that people would become unclean from time to time, and it gave you a way to become clean again. In the same way, um, when Jesus set out to cure sin, he can't do that if he won't associate with sinners. He couldn't do it 
the way the Pharisees wanted him to do it. And so he points to the relationship. He points to who goes to see the doctor. Now, we have to bear with this a bit. It's a picture that doesn't work quite so well these days. We know that today there will be people who are sick and who do want the doctor to help, but who, for whatever reason, can't get an appointment. But even if we had infinite doctor's appointments, even if they were easily accessible, there are still plenty of sick people who wouldn't go. There are plenty of sick people who would see that warning sign of that serious illness and think, eh, it's not so serious, I'll be fine, it'll pass. There are plenty of sick people who know that they're sick, but think that they can cure themselves with a special diet or a supplement or a crystal or whatever else. There are plenty of sick people who don't want the doctor. But the point that Jesus is making here, the, the right relationship that he's referring to, is to sick people who do want the doctor. And those are the tax collectors and the sinners that he's gathered around him. He's not saying that the Pharisees are righteous when he says he's come to call not the righteous but sinners. He's saying that they believe that they're righteous. They think that their religion, their box ticking, means that they can be right with God, that they can cure themselves, or that their sin isn't a serious problem. Now, the people he wants, the relationship he wants, is with the tax collectors and the sinners, the people who know that they're not right with God, the people who know that they're sick, and the people who want the doctor to make them well again. That's the relationship um, that Jesus is pointing out here, and that's step two of the formula. And then step three of the formula, uh, he's rejected religious righteousness, he's referred to right relationship, and then in verse 17, Jesus reveals his real role. And in this first episode, actually, he's pointing backwards um, to what we saw last week. When he healed the paralyzed man, Jesus said that he had the authority to forgive sin. Um, and as some of the people standing around recognized, that meant that he was saying that he was God. So he's doing the same this week in this first episode. He's comparing himself to a doctor who's come to cure sin. So he's repeating that claim. He's repeating that claim to be God. He's calling sinners to himself, not for fun, but to help them. So he's once again saying that he has that authority. He has God's authority to deal with sin. So there's our formula. Jesus rejects religious righteousness. He refers to right relationship. And he reveals his real role, okay? And those are the three elements um, that we're going to pick out of the other two episodes uh, very quickly. So episode two, verse 18. The Pharisees are fasting. John's disciples are fasting. Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And so in comes the challenge uh, from the Pharisees. Why aren't you fasting? So again, first thing we have to do, Refusing to fast was not breaking the Old Testament law. Let's start there. There is only one fast required, required by the Old Testament law, and that's on the Day of Atonement. This is not the Day of Atonement. Okay, so this was not a breach of the law. Full stop. Outside of the Day of Atonement, fasting is used in the Old Testament more often. It's a symbol of mourning. Sometimes it's literal mourning when somebody's died. Sometimes it's symbolic mourning. It's mourning for sin. So in those great moments of repentance that we've talked about, when Israel has been turned away from God and turned back, sometimes they fast. 
they repent of their previous behavior, they mourn the way that they've been behaving, and they fast as part of that mourning, part of that symbol. So that's how fasting is used in the Old Testament. In that context, it makes sense that John the Baptist's disciples would fast. We saw in chapter 1, John's ministry is exactly about repentance. That's what he's come to say. Repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. In the same way as his clothes and his food were also Old Testament symbols of repentance, he fasted. It was a demonstration of his message. He was bringing everybody back. Everything about him came back to repentance. Everybody needed to repent and be ready to accept Jesus. That was John's ministry. Of course, his disciples would fast with him. The Pharisees, on the other hand, just fasted twice a week, every week. Not because they particularly emphasized repentance, not because they lived in the wilderness and ate locusts and wore humble clothes. They didn't do any of that. They fasted twice a week because fasting was a very pious-looking thing to do, and so they did it. Uh, there's a later in, in um, Luke's gospel, in fact, in Luke 18, there's a, the parable that Jesus tells of, um, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And when he's laying out what the Pharisee says and all the ways in which the Pharisee leans on his own righteousness, I fast twice a week is one of the things that he says. This is one of the things that the Pharisees believed made them righteous, that they had this sort of performative mourning for the state of the world. So that's step one of our formula. The Pharisees' religion says you fast twice a week, and that makes you super righteous. Jesus eats. Jesus' disciples eat, and he's fine with it. So he rejects that religious righteousness. In step two, he refers to right relationship. Uh, we see this in verse 19. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They can't. If you're at a wedding party... Hopefully I don't need to tell anyone this. You don't go in mourning. You're not there to mourn. You're there to celebrate. You're enjoying the hospitality of the couple who are getting married. You're happy to be sharing in their... In the same way, Jesus is saying here that being in his presence is a cause for the disciples to celebrate. His ministry isn't about followers and disciples who are performing rituals. No, the people around Jesus then and now, are his invited guests. We're enjoying what he provides. They're enjoying his company. They're enjoying his presence. And of course, eventually, they will enjoy his righteousness. So the right relationship, what Jesus was looking for, was to recognize who he was. Was to recognize that him being there was a cause for joy. Not a time to mourn. And again, step three, Jesus reveals his real role. He uses a word here that reveals it. And again, it, it might go over our heads. But everyone that Jesus was speaking to would absolutely have known the significance when he calls himself the bridegroom. Uh, in Isaiah 62, and Chris, I'm sorry if I'm stepping in, on your toes for this evening. Uh, in Isaiah 62, um, there's a prophecy of God's people being restored. And it says, as a young man marries a young woman so will your builder marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This was a massive prophecy for Israel 
when they were under the Roman Empire. This was a promise that one day they'd be restored. One day they'd be put back in their rightful place. This was something they clung to. And why wouldn't you? The promise of God looking at you with all the love in his eyes um, that a spouse has for another spouse at the top of the aisle. What a wonderful thing. So by calling himself the bridegroom, Jesus is referring back to this prophecy in Isaiah. Jesus is saying that he's the one who has come to marry his people. He's keeping it subtle. Sam spoke a couple of weeks ago about how Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is not coming out and saying it. He's, he's actually sort of telling people not to spread the word. He doesn't need all the opposition at this point. So he's not coming out and saying, point blank, I am God. But by using these pictures, Jesus is revealing his real role. He's showing that he is God, but in a way that, that won't get him arrested for blasphemy. And finally, episode three, again, the facts are very simple. It is the Sabbath, verse 23. The disciples are walking through a field and they pick some grain. Once again, this is not against the law. And we have to be clear about that because sometimes that that interpretation gets lost. What the law required was that you kept the Sabbath holy. And what that requires is that you don't go to your job. But the disciples weren't harvesting the field. They weren't farmhands, right? They were having a snack. They were eating. It was perfectly allowed by the law. But again, the Pharisees had built up an extra layer around the law. And one of those rules was that picking any grain at all counts as work. So once again, the conflict here is because Jesus and his disciples are breaking the Pharisees' rules, not because they're breaking the law. So once again, Jesus rejects religious righteousness. Verse 27, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God didn't come up with the idea of one day off in seven and then decide, well, gosh, I'd better create some people so that they can follow that pattern for me. Nonsense. God made people. And then he gave those people a day to relax. He gave those people a day without the pressures of work. He gave those people a day to enjoy their relationship with God. That was what the Sabbath was intended for. The Pharisees thought that the point of the Sabbath was what you don't do. So they thought, well, if we can make that list longer and longer, well, then we'll be more righteous. But no, Jesus reminds them, the point of the Sabbath is actually for you, is to refer you back to your right relationship with God. The disciples here are literally having a picnic with God. That's pretty much as good as you could do on the Sabbath. That's exactly what the Sabbath is for. They're enjoying God's world. They're in his company. They're using that day of rest to have actual face-to-face conversations with God himself. With apologies for for the very American phrase, they're working on their relationship with Jesus, which is exactly what they should be doing and exactly what the Pharisees' religious righteousness would have them not do. This is the episode where Jesus reveals his role in in a couple of different ways, actually. Uh, So firstly, and most obviously, verse 28, he says that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. We've already said that the Sabbath is a day set apart by God, set apart for relationship with God. Well, so who else could be the Lord of that day but God? 
it's the same claim. The slightly more complicated one is in verses 25 and 26. Um, and this really is a story that, um, that sums up the whole thesis, I think, of, of what Jesus has been saying in this formula. So in verses 25 and 26, he talks about King David. So that's our first clue. Whenever you hear King David uh, in the New Testament, what do we think of? What do we have to think of? The promises of the Messiah. The promises that, that David's throne would be restored. That a king from David's line would come and rule God's people. So we're, we've got that involved. That's part of the role that Jesus is revealing. But actually more than that, the particular story that Jesus tells about David here shows the great hero of Israel breaking the actual law. This was against the law to eat the bread, the bread of the presence. While Jesus has only broken the Pharisees' rules. So Jesus is not just showing David, not just invoking those Messiah um, ideas. He's also comparing himself favorably. He's showing himself that while David broke the law, Jesus didn't. And in some ways, this sums up the whole thing, because actually Jesus here is gesturing to, pointing to the idea that actually even the law is not just a system of checkboxes. He hasn't broken the law in any of these incidents. We must be clear about that. But by talking about an incident where great King David, who enjoyed that relationship with God, did break the law and was not punished, Jesus is pointing to the fact that even the law is not designed for robotic obedience, that even the law is second place to relationship. It's designed to point us to relationship. There's so much more we could say. It's, it's a fascinating story, but um, I'm running over time, so let me wrap up. Three times in, in these incidents, Jesus rejects religious righteousness. The Pharisees spend their time and energy building up this religious performance. They don't associate with sinners. They fast twice a week every week. They write vast lists of things that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath, all in a bid to make themselves clean. All of it is to try and make them righteous. But Jesus is clear. We see it every time in the story. It's not the way. He doesn't break the law, but he will very happily break the Pharisees' rules because those rules don't lead to righteousness. No, what our formula shows is that what leads to righteousness is right relationship. What leads to righteousness is admitting that we're sick, that we can't cure ourselves, and asking for help. What leads to righteousness is rejoicing in Jesus' presence in our lives and recognizing him for who he is. Because as he says over and over again, he is God. He is the one who can deal with sin. He's the one who invites us into his presence and to that great feast he's prepared. He's the one who fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah and who will one day rule over his people. So as we go out into the week, let's think about this. Let's challenge the things that we do. Where in our lives are we just performing religious ritual because we think that's making us righteous? It's not straightforward. On the outside, these are probably going to look like good things. They're probably sensible things that we've decided to do at some point, but we've come to put too much reliance on them. Maybe they're things that did start off motivated by, by pursuing that right relationship with Jesus, but after a while just turned into things on the to-do list, things that we have to get ticked off as quickly as possible 
We can't stop doing them. That would make us unrighteous. If there's anything like that for you, I hope it's clear this morning that Jesus does reject that. He's absolutely clear. Going through the motions, going through the religious motions, don't make you right with him. It's time to look at those activities. It's time to re-energize them. It's time to do them because of what they mean for us. It's time to be motivated by that relationship with Jesus, not by doing the thing for its own sake. We can't rely on religion to make us righteous. We must rely on relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us. We thank you for everything that it shows. And we pray that we would keep it central in our hearts and in our lives. Uh, that when we, um, when we do things in service to you, that that is relationship. Father, we pray that everything that we do would be motivated not because we think it would make us righteous, but out of our love for you, out of our desire to serve you better. We pray in your son's name that we would keep this close to us. Amen.